Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey, welcome back to the Short Term Show. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in New Orleans. I lived there pretty much my whole life, except for like, you know, college at LSU and a year in Dallas. But besides that, I lived, lived there my whole life. I am a real estate investor. Um, I own a bunch of duplexes in New Orleans, 25 duplexes in New Orleans, one triplex. Um, own some short-term rentals here in Florida, and then also one in Colorado. So I have a, I have a background in um, finance. I studied finance at college, and then I was a certified financial planner in my 20s. And I um, started real estate investing in 2003, bought my first duplex then, and then just slowly built it up over time. And I became a full-time real estate investor in 2012. So I've been doing that ever since. Awesome. So you have a bunch of duplexes in New Orleans. Uh, what did you start with the long terms or did you start with the short terms? I started with the long term. So I bought my first duplex. I lived in one side and I ran out the other side before anybody called it house hacking. And that's that's the word the words for it now. And my tenants were paying my mortgage. And I thought to myself, why isn't everyone doing this? Why am I the only person that I know that I'm that are that is doing this or one of the only people? And I just started buying other properties in my neighborhood slowly over time. So I kind of built built around this one neighborhood and then I went to another neighborhood and built and bought a bunch of duplexes in another neighborhood and kind of went from there. I didn't buy a ton at a time, just slowly over time. And it just worked out well for me. That's awesome. <laughs> it's nice to be able to like build a good size portfolio in one location. Cause I know with us, we invested in Chattanooga. We started in Nashville and then we invested in Chattanooga and it just is for long terms. Anyway, it just, the deals kind of dried up for us really quickly because those markets kind of the cat was out of the bag already by the time we started investing in them. So, uh, we have like a few here, a few there. So it's, it would be really nice to be able to have 25, you know, 50 doors, I guess you have in one spot. Yes. And then, I mean, I was doing all long, long-term stuff at first. And I think in 2011 or 10, I, my, um, my then girlfriend and I, but I mean, it, my house, I was, I started short-term renting that house for like um, events in New Orleans. So I started doing Jazz Fest and we'd make a bunch of money. And then when my wife and I got married in 2012, we actually, I was, I was financially independent enough that we took a year off and we went and traveled the world. And I was short-term renting my house, our house in New Orleans that entire time. And I was actually making a nice arbitrage. So I was making more money from short-term running our house in New Orleans than I was paying to short-term rent properties in other countries. Like I remember one time we were in Argentina and we were there for a couple months and we were spending on average 40 or $50 a night 
to short to to rent um, an Airbnb down there. Where in New Orleans we were short term term renting our house for between two hundred and three hundred dollars a night. So we were making money while traveling the world, which was kind of cool. That is really cool. So you just kind of fell into short term renting some of your New Orleans stuff as you were traveling. So you own a few or have owned a few short-term rentals in Florida over the course of the last few years. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how you got into that? Yeah. So in 2016, my wife and I, and another couple that we're friends with, we rented a house actually in this neighborhood. And I was like, this is a really cool neighborhood. It, it, it was two or three blocks from the Gulf of Mexico, some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And they also had a giant state forest backing up to the neighborhood. So it was like 15,000 acres of state forest with a bunch of hiking trails. And I'm not, I love the beach. I'm a beach person, but I don't like just going to the beach every day. Like for me, eventually it gets a little boring. So I love to hike. I love nature. I love, you know, going mountain biking. So having a neighborhood that had all the, the forest and the, the hiking trails and biking trails, I was like, this is awesome. And I made an offer on a lot like two days later. I was like, this is, this is a spot. I wish I would have bought like 20 lots. Um, so we made an offer. We, we built a house here and we short-term rented it right away. And we were also using it. So we did really well short-term renting it. And then we would use it as well. We, we, we didn't really do it to purely make money um, because we, were, we wanted to use it as a vacation, um, for vacation house for ourselves as well because it's only a four and a half hour drive from New Orleans. But it ended up being a great investment. And then a couple of years later, we bought another lot, two doors down with my sister and brother-in-law, and we built another house. And that one is, is, is pure short-term rental. And then now I bought four other lots in the area, and one of them is under construction now. It's, it's, a, it's actually a, 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 I would say a tiny house, but a tiny house is like under 200 square feet. It's a small house. It's 750 square feet. I'm going to short-term rental that. And then we have three other lots that we're going to build on in short-term rent. Awesome. And just so everybody knows where you are, what neighborhood and what part of Florida are you in right now? So it gets a little confusing, but our mailing address says Santa Rosa Beach, but everyone calls it 30A because 30A is the name of the highway. That's it's a, I think a 15 mile highway that stretches along the beach. So it's gotten pretty famous and they've, they've coined that term 30A. Um, and it's more of a higher end area compared to what's, what has previously been known as the Redneck Riviera, which was basically, <laughs> yeah, which was more of like Gulf Shores, Alabama, all the way to Destin was kind of known as a redneck Riviera, but I think the tourist industry is, you know, trying to get away from that name, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's like Pensacola now that's kind of the redneck Riviera. Yeah. Yeah. Like Florabama, which is on the Alabama, Florida line, you know, that's probably the heart of, of the redneck Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am a, uh, proud visitor year for every year of my life since I was born to the Redneck Riviera. <laughs> As was I. <laughs> so tell us about doing new construction short-term rentals. So you bought a few lots. Uh, I know a lot of people had the idea like, okay, I'm going to just build what I want to build rather than waiting for something that I really like to come on the market. But there are, you know, it's not 
as easy as people think it is. They think, oh, I'm just going to build this and it's going to be perfect and it's just going to go really smooth and then it's going to be awesome. Can you speak to the ups and downs and just kind of the process of doing a new construction? Yes. Number one, it's not easy. So you typically in, in this area, there's a lot of HOAs. So you you have to hire an architect. So, and some architects are extremely expensive down here. You know, a lot of them, some of them want $20 a square foot, which is just obscene to me. You know, I have a guy that'll do it for, for eight to $11 a square foot, which is also pretty expensive in my mind, but it's cheap compared to other people. And then you have to go through the HOA process. They have to approve your plans. Some of these HOAs get extremely picky on the colors of your house, the types of doors you have, the types of windows you have, your design, your ceiling height, your types of your roof. It can be very daunting. And that's one of the another reasons to pay an architect to help you through the process. <clears throat> I'm the type of person, I have a construction background. I, I, um, I was very a part of the construction of a lot of the and renovation of houses that I did in New Orleans. So I'm very picky. I like a very good looking high house. Some of the houses that people build, I hate. I don't like these giant three-story monstrosities that have all concrete in the front yard. I like landscaping. I like something that has scale. I like a beautiful house that I'm going to be very proud of. I'm not just all about the cash flow, which might hurt your heart and some other people listening here, but I, I want something that I can be I, I want something that I can be proud of. I want something that when someone looks on Airbnb, they see that house and, and said, that's a beautiful house. I want to rent that house. And I feel like we get a higher price because you know, I build beautiful houses, I feel like. Um, but the process can be daunting. You got to deal with a contractor. You got to deal with, with builders. You know, builders make a lot of mistakes. You have to watch them. You have to know what you're doing. Luckily, I have that background. So I, you know, I can I can pick out mistakes. I can pick out problems. You know, I don't, I don't try to have an adversarial relationship with a builder. I'm not that type of person, but, you know, I'm going to, point out problems and, and have them fix it. I, I feel like early, which I think they appreciate rather than after the fact when it's a lot more expensive to remedy a situation. Um, building, building takes time right now. Lumber is extremely expensive. It's insane. So that would be one thing to look at if you're going to build um, new construction is the cost of lumber. So. Okay, cool. So, I 100% agree that it is not easy to do new construction. I've done a lot of representation of developers who are building, you know, a community of spec homes. And, you know, that's kind of like when you first get into being a real estate agent, you think, oh man, I'd love to represent a developer on a community full of new constructions because that sounds like, you know, it, it should go really easily, but it does not. It actually goes it's much more difficult to be a listing agent on brand new construction than it is to be a listing agent on an existing property. Because I feel like people just, no matter how much, what a great idea you give them of what things are going to look like, no matter what renderings you give them, no matter how accurate they are, you're never going to be able to match exactly what is in their imagination because that is just, you know, that's their imagination. You can't, no amount of drawings and architectural designs are going to be exactly what they pictured. So people can get just really crazy about new construction. So one thing I want to zoom in on when you were talking about 
how you you build something you want to be proud of. You don't like the big three story monstrosities. So when you say that, I assume you mean like the big, tall, skinny or wide. Some of them are wide around here. I'm actually on 30A right now, too. Uh, like the big, tall, skinny that are just like big boxes with windows and doors. Tell me, go into a little more detail about what it is you are building, what sizes and, you know, what makes you proud of a property if you're not just going to build a big, tall, skinny that sleeps as many people as possible? Right. That's a great question. And, and I'm actually not against three-story houses. I actually, this house is actually a three-story house. The one we built two, door, two doors down is a three-story house, but we built a third story into the roof line. So it actually kind of looks like a two-story home and it has good scale. I, I was talking about, you know, the three and four-story houses, like you said, they look like giant boxes, um, they probably don't have great details, great trim. Um, they probably don't have a good roof pitch to them. And a lot of them I've noticed that are just, they're just um, clear cutting all the natural landscaping and all the mature trees here and maybe planting a palm tree or two or just doing all concrete in the front yard. And that drives me crazy. So I love the, I love the native landscaping out here. I think this area of the country is absolutely gorgeous. The trees, the, the the natural landscaping that does not need watering. So I don't know why people cut it down. Um, so, you know, that's part of it is, is, is like, you know, we move here f- for the way it looks and then you're going to completely turn it into something. It's not like we're not South Florida. This is not a place to like clear cut and plant a couple palm trees. Uh, we have a lot of beautiful pine trees here. But we have beautiful natural flowers. Like if I went to for a walk in the forest behind my house right now, there would be different types of natural flowers blooming everywhere that were not planted by anybody. They're just natural. So. Yeah, my favorite thing, my favorite piece of landscape or native I don't even know what I'm talking about. Native uh, trees. I love the live oak trees. Anytime I'm out looking at properties, I am drawn to the ones that aren't cut, you know, all the way down, just like a, a cookie cutter neighborhood. I love the neighborhoods where there's tons of palmettos and live oaks growing everywhere. I totally get where you're coming from there. When we bought the house that we're in right now, my I was like, I really want some live oaks. I have two sad little live oaks in the back of, uh, but um, we did get a really, really great deal on the house that we're in right now, so I can't complain. But I love those live oak and palmetto trees. I totally hear you on that. Yes, plus it's really hot here in the summer. In you know May through May till October, it's really hot here. So you want some shade. You know we get some, we get a nice breeze from the Gulf, but it's nice to have shade. So it's um, another thing I was going to add is it's nice to have porches. And renters love porches. They come here for that Southern architecture. They want like a, you know, a porch swing or a bed swing. Uh, They want to relax outdoors and they want to be in the shade. So having a nice deep porch or a back porch or a side porch, people love that stuff. And some of these big, you know, boxy houses, some of them don't even put a front porch on the house. So that's one of the things that drives me nuts as well. (laughs) I love a good, big Southern wraparound front porch for sure. So, okay, let's talk about, you have one other short-term rental in Colorado. How did you find that one? How did you decide which market in Colorado you're going to buy in? Because that's a long way from the panhandle of Florida. Yes. So a dream growing up of mine was to always 
own a house in Colorado. My great grandmother lived there for 35 years. My I had an uncle live there for over 30 years as well. And I used to go up there every year and visit them. And I just, I've always loved the mountains. I've always loved the weather there in the summer. It's just amazing. So I've always wanted to own a place in Colorado. Um, I've, I've taken my wife and my, my kids there many times. So an opportunity came up, uh, um, a guy that I know that I'm friends with, that I go diving with, uh, he owned some land about 30 minutes south of Vail, about 15 minutes north of Leadville. And he was eventually going to build a house there. But the cost of construction in that area has gotten absolutely insane. And another uh, another house in that neighborhood came up for sale. And it was a really good deal. But he needed some partners. So he uh, contacted uh, myself and another friend of ours to go in with him because he knew I love Colorado. So I, was, I jumped at the chance. You know, so we bought a place for um, $1.2 million up there, and uh, we've been short-term renting it when we're not using it. So, What kind of returns are you seeing on that? So on that one, so I have, you know, I have three partners, and we use it a decent amount. Um, now, when we don't rent it, it's typically rented for between five and six fifty dollars a night. Um, but we use it a decent amount. So it's not purely a money play. Now, our biggest gain has been we bought it for one, two, um, a few months before COVID hit. And I think now we could probably sell it for $2 million in just that short period of time. So that's where we've really made our money no matter what. So any any short term rental for me is just lanyap. It's just, it's just icing on the cake. Uh, because we've done so well in the capital appreciation. Um, but we just actually we just got two rentals yesterday uh, for the summer and for $600 a night. And it's two miles from a ski resort. So, you know, we, it's 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 very close to a ski resort, but we're not getting like ski rentals like you would in like Vail or Breckenridge or something like that. Um, we're, clo- we're cl- close to a very local ski resort, smaller ski resort, which is awesome. It's called Ski Cooper. Uh, but we're also a 30 minute drive from Vail. So the house has been running really well when we're not using it, but we, we use it a decent amount. So it's not rented like all year or anything. Okay. So something that I found really interesting in that little scenario. So a lot of people think, okay, I'm going to buy a more expensive short-term rental with a friend and we're going to be able to use it some and we're going to make money when we're not there. That can present a lot of problems and things to trip up on. Like, how do you decide who gets to stay when? Is my partner staying too much and cutting into our income? How do you guys navigate that situation? So I would say, you know, we actually did hire an attorney before we did it because uh, the three that of us. Part, write that down, everybody. We, we, we actually hired an attorney, and which drew up an operating agreement. We formed an LLC. Um because I'd never, we had never really done business together. And, you know, we just wanted the rules there, but we rarely refer to that. I mean, I would say number one rule, you know, go in with very laid back people and then people that probably don't absolutely need the money. So, and, and all three of us, we went in knowing that this wasn't a cash flow. You know, we weren't doing it to cash flow. We were doing it, we were going to rent it just to kind of pay our expenses. So we're not, like yelling at each other when, when we're trying to use the house, we, we wanted it. We, we wanted to be able to use it as much as possible ourselves. And then, you know, we wanted to rent it to, to pay for expenses. One of our partners lives three hours away. So he does use it more than the rest of us. But the great thing is, 
you know, he handles all the problems with the house and he does all the extra stuff. And, and he, 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 he carries the heavy load of the house. So the other, the, my other friend and I, we really don't have to do anything. So we don't care that he uses it more. We appreciate it actually. That's awesome. Uh, And that is the key. If you're going to go into business with anybody, whether it's laid back and just to make sure you're paying your expenses, or if you're both looking for cash flow, you have got to have an attorney write up an operating agreement. Just it's, it doesn't matter how close of friends you are. Things can go sideways and partnerships can sour very quickly. I've seen it happen. It hasn't happened to me yet, but I've seen it happen with clients. And it's just, you really have to make sure that you have all your ducks in a row for in the scenario that that can happen. Right, exactly. That's where your priorities lie. You know, my priority there is number one, my friends. Number two, just having the house there for myself and my family to bring, to build memories. And then the third part for me, the third priority is making money and, and having it appreciate. So making money, making money is not my number one priority on that. one. So on, on other ones it is, but not on that one. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Let's go back to the other ones that it is the priority to make you money. How are you financing these deals? Because so let's start with your long terms in New Orleans and then let's get to your builds, how you're financing those. So, so just start from the beginning. So that's a very complicated answer. Um, The first answer is the first number of duplexes I bought, I bought before the real estate crash in 08. So it was extremely easy to borrow money. I had a W-2 job and and I didn't really have any net worth at all. And banks were bending over backwards to loan me money. I don't know why. Um, after the crash and, and then after when I became self-employed, it became a lot more difficult. So I got into the habit of actually um, finding private lenders that would lend me money. I'd pay them higher interest rate, you know, 10 to 12%. But I got addicted to it because it was a lot easier. You know, I, I built relationships where I could call somebody on a Monday and, and I could actually have hundreds of thousands of dollars in my account by Wednesday to do a deal. And I got spoiled with that. So I, I kind of stopped using banks. As my portfolio grew, we actually, a couple of times, we pulled properties into um, a loan and got a portfolio loan um, and did that. And that was, that was great because, you know, the, the banks then treat it as a commercial loan and they're not looking at all your income tax returns and your income as much. They care more about the properties. But I still use private loans. Um, now, on the, the property two doors down that we built, you know, I use a combination of private money and my own money. And actually we have, and now we have no debt on that property. So, you know, when COVID hit and we were freaking out because the, the nation shut down all vacations and shut down the beach and shut down short-term rental, luckily I had no debt on that on that property. So we didn't have to make a mortgage or something. So it kind of held us through. And then when, when things opened opened up in Florida, it was like the floodgates opened up. It was business was crazy. It was it was unbelievable, and it's been un- unbelievable since then. Yeah, we've definitely seen that with our rentals also. So, um, with the private money, so a lot of people hear that word and they have no idea where to start or what private money means. So, can you kind of go into a little bit of detail about? 
what private money is. Is it, uh, you know, like a formal private money lender or is it just like friends? Can you kind of go into a little bit of detail for people who might not be as familiar with that term? I've done both. You know, a private lender is basically, you know, a bank, you know, it's a friend or a family member acting as a bank for you. Um, they typically get as a first lien on the property and they lend you money based on the property. You know, some will, some will usually go on uh, 70% LTV. Some will go up to 80% LTV. Um, but I stumbled onto a, a, a lender that does this for a living out of Mobile, Alabama. And um, I just got a reference out of nowhere. And I've been, I've had a relationship with him for over 10 years now. And it's been great. I've never missed a payment for him. So he loves me. Um, and he gets me money very quickly when I need it. And, um, and then I've also done friends and family loans. You know, I've just casually mentioned over time with, with people that are looking for better returns and more predictable returns with investments and want that cash flow. And I've borrowed money from them before. And it's great when you pay somebody back and they're like, wow, this really works. He really paid me back. This is cool. And then they just want to keep doing it. So. Awesome. So how do you, when you're pitching a friend or family member on loaning you private money, how do you get them on board? Because I know if I were to like go to anybody in my family, I can, basically any of them and say, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. None of them know enough about real estate to really feel comfortable. So they would just be betting on me personally. Uh, are your private money lenders, are they typically experienced in real estate or just they know you personally really well, so they're okay with it? I'd say both because the average person on the street, if you try to borrow money from them or ask them about it, they're going to freak out and run away because they don't know how real estate works. They think automatically that you don't have money and you're broke and that's why you need money from me. So why would I lend money to a broke person? <laughs> when it's total, when it's the, you know, the total opposite, you're just trying not to spend your own money and liquidate your own assets. You're just trying to use OPM, other people's money to do your deals. Right. So I would say, yeah, don't waste time with people that are not sophisticated on real estate and real estate financing. Um, go to people that have ex either experience doing it you know, go to like a bigger pockets forum or something like that, or, or a friend that is a real estate investor that might want to diversify their cash flow investments. And they might know you, they might like you, they might trust you. And, and, and they feel comfortable if they're going to get a lien on the property. If it's a great property, you know, they really don't have anything to lose because they can always take the property from you if you don't pay them. So I would say, yes, go with an experience. Um, um, a sophisticated real estate investor or somebody's done uh, private loans in, in this sphere before. Cool. So, Kurt, thank you so much for coming on. We are getting to the last three questions of the show. So first of the last questions, what advice would you give 20-year-old Kurt if you were doing this all over again? The advice I would give myself, I was at, I was at LSU at the time, you know, like a sophomore, junior in, in college, I would tell myself to stop drinking and partying so much. And I'd actually say maybe drop out of college and start investing in real estate then, because that, that would have given me a six year head start from where I did begin. And I would have, um, 
I would have made, you know, a headway. And I would also tell myself, you know, get into a mastermind or get with a group of people that think the same way that you think, that want to be wealthy, that want to be financially independent, that share your core values and stop hanging around people that are going nowhere. You know, it's, it's, it's harsh sometimes, but, you know, being around people that you can bounce ideas off, whether it's a mastermind or whether it's just a forum that you can find on the Internet somewhere where people are doing the same thing you're doing, you're not going to make the same amount of mistakes you are just by going it alone. It really is so important to kind of find your tribe of like-minded people who are, you know, who do want to be financially independent and who do want to build generational wealth. And it is difficult to, when you realize that you might be the only person in your friend group that is interested in anything like that. And, you know, maybe everybody else just wants to, is happy working a job forever and doesn't have that entrepreneurial mindset. And then it becomes kind of a weird disconnect. So I totally understand that. And I've been there myself. So that's really great advice. And kind of piggybacking off of that, what advice would you give a new investor who is looking to get started in today's market? I'd say, first of all, there's no better learning than, than doing. So just do a deal, buy a property and just do it. You know, who cares if you're going to lose, try not to lose that much money, but who cares if you lose money on your first deal? I would go into it looking looking at it like, hey, I might lose money on my first deal, but you'll make so much more money in the long run just by getting that experience. So don't procrastinate, procrastinate. don't sit there and wait 10 years for the perfect, the perfect opportunity to invest because that opportunity might not come. You know, two years ago here in Florida, I thought it was getting a little expensive and then, you know, it might not be a good time to invest here and things have like doubled since then. So there, are, there there's always a time to find a deal and I would just get out there and do it. And then the second advice is get into a mastermind or a group of people that, that have been doing it and that, that maybe they're where you want to be in 10 years. Like I'm in a group called Go Abundance. You know, your husband's in it as well. Me too. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's changed my life. Um, get in with a group of, of men or women that are that are where you want to be, that can be mentors for you. And then maybe you'll be a mentor for other people as well. And that'll, that'll help um, rocket ship you to the next level. Absolutely. So last question is, do you have a favorite book or just a book recommendation for our listeners on a book that has changed your mindset? Yes. So I'm a virtue signal a little bit here. I read a ton of books. I read 50 books last year. I try to I'm, I'm, I'm try to read 100 books this year. So you have to read, constantly be reading. Um, so it's hard to pick one, but I'd say The Wealthy Gardener. I, that is an instant classic. It came out, I think, in 2020. So it's pretty new, but it's one of the best books I've read on financial mindset, financial freedom, um, just how to think about being financially independent. Um, it's a guy named John Soforic. He's not a famous guy. You know, he's not a Robert Kiyosaki type guy. But this book is going to be a book 
that stays with us over the generations. It's that good. And I highly recommend it. The Wealthy Gardener. I have not heard of that one. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, Kurt, thank you again so much for spending time with us today. If our listeners want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? They can find me on Facebook or Instagram, or they can email me. Just uh, Google my name. I'm, I'm out there on stuff. Just send me a message, Facebook, Instagram, email, call me. I'm, uh, I'm an open book and I'm, um, I'm here to help any way that I can. All right, Kurt. Thanks again. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Henry. I appreciate it.